Please open your Bibles with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 16 through 30 this morning. We left off last week with John recalling for us his eyewitness account of Jesus healing a man who had been paralyzed, basically, or invalid for 38 years. And that took place at, um, in Jerusalem at the pool called Bethesda. And the point of John's account really wasn't, it, it was to show you that Jesus is his divine power and his, in his divine authority. I think that's important. But mainly, it was to lead us into the fact that just as shocking and as powerful as Jesus' ability over sickness and all these things was the shocking fact that the religious leaders totally, absolutely, 100% rejected Jesus Christ. And in that rejection, John is building the case that they're not rejecting man, some guy, some miracle worker that's walking around. They're rejecting God. They're rejecting God himself. And so just to get back to the flow, Jesus had just healed that man. He told him to pick up his mat and walk. And the religious leaders became upset because he was carrying that mat on the Sabbath. And so they uh, asked the man, hey, who is it that told you to do this? And the man says, I don't know, because Jesus had kind of moved off into the crowd. And then Jesus went later and found him. Verse 14, it says that afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said, hey, see, to him, see you're well. Don't sin, lest something worse happen to you. Worse than being paralyzed for 38 years. He's saying you've got to repent You've got to turn to God in faith, otherwise you're going to hell. That's basically the message. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Verse 18 says that um, this was why the Jews were seeking to kill him more. And we'll get into that, verse 17, because he basically said, hey, listen, in response to that, my father and I are doing these works. And uh, they didn't like that, because Jesus was equating himself with God. But really... They were seeking to kill him. They were seeking to persecute him because he was breaking the Sabbath law. And they were seeking to kill him because he equated himself with God, making God his own father, right? And so John gives us two reasons why the Jews were persecuting Jesus and they sought to kill him. Obviously, the first was he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And if you notice that word, these things, what it's saying is that this was not an isolated event. John just takes one event to kind of exemplify what was going on because Jesus was healing all the time on the Sabbath. You check that out in the other Gospels. And they are on his case constantly about what he's doing on the Sabbath. And as we spoke about, the Jews perverted their view of the Sabbath, how they had taken what was to be a day of rest in worship towards God for the Jews, and they made it to where... Um, in their legalism, it became a burden someday. Making, and they were the law keepers. They were making sure that everyone was keeping that law. And so when they saw this guy carrying the mat, they were on him like a rat on a Cheeto. They were absolutely just like <laughs> getting it. They were just on that. And um, 
Instead of rejoicing that the man had been healed for 38 years, they cringed that, they, that this man would dare break the law. And they wanted to find out who in the world told them that. When they found out it was Jesus, they started to persecute him. And that was John's point in bringing up the miracle to reveal the heart of the leadership. The leadership that was supposed to usher and prepare the people for their Messiah and to soften their hearts towards the coming of the king were actually the ones who would turn and harden the hearts of the people as that persecution then turned in not only to persecution but into a plot to kill him, to murder him. And so instead of backing down, when Jesus hears of, um, when he starts to receive this persecution, in verse 17, Jesus says, My father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus responds by saying, My father who is, my, who is God, is my father, and, and guess what? I'm, we're doing the same thing. In verse 18 says, and I just, I'm kind of repeating myself here, but uh, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God, and that's the second reason they persecuted and sought to kill him, because Jesus was making himself equal with, with God, and this was true. This was true. Jesus is God in the flesh. John's whole point is that the Jews were in such darkness, such spiritual darkness, that they could not see the God they proclaimed to worship in front of them. That's John's whole thrust, the darkness and light comment, the life and the death. He's saying that God Almighty is standing in front of them, doing the works of God and they rejected him. They were in such spiritual darkness. Instead of welcoming their Messiah, they persecuted and sought to kill him, which they did. And John states earlier in his gospel, in chapter 1, verse 11, by declaring, he came to his own, his own people did not receive him. They were religious people who had become totally blind and deaf to the God they declared to worship. And this crescendoed at the cross. It elevates to the cross, and that's what John is pointing. But as we step back and look at these verses, we find some really cool things about the Lord. The Lord shows us and teaches us a lot about himself as he is responding to these. And this is very important. You know, so like, like I say often, quite often we come to church and go, hey, God, speak to me about a certain situation that's going on, and I think that's important. But I think more important is that we know who he is. We know his character. We know his nature. We know what he does in certain circumstances. We know the essence and, the, and, and, and who our God is and what his will is. And those things help with every single situation in life. And so in praying that as a church we would focus on the Lord Jesus this morning, know more about his character, who he is, and may that just roll over us like a, a wave into every area of our lives. We learn some astounding things that Jesus declares here. And that's where I want to focus. First off, if you notice, Jesus didn't back down when the Jews started to persecute him and accuse him of violating the Sabbath. Instead, he does a verse 17. But when Jesus answered them, he answers them and says, My father is working until now, and I am working. And this was blasphemy to the Jews. Because although God was viewed nationally as their father, no way is anybody going to say that he is my father. We're not of the same essence. We're not of the same nature. We're totally separate from him. And Jesus, in declaring that the father was his father, was saying, 
We are one in the same. We are of the same essence. We are of the same nature. God is my father. I am his son. We are one. And for this, they sought to kill him for blasphemy. And not only was God, was Jesus declaring that, that he and his father were same in essence, he's saying that they were both doing the same works. They had the same will, actually. They had the same will. And Jesus declares this, my father is working till now and I am working. We both have the same works in mind. And, and so it's not only that Jesus has unified God in his essence, Jesus has unified God within his purpose. They're now working together. The same works that the Father does are the works the Son does. The same work that the Son does is, are the works that the Father does. And, and Jesus develops this first, further in verse 19. It says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own will, his own accord, but only what he sees the Father is doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So Jesus is telling the Jews, truly, truly, which means the most emphatic terms, hey, listen up, this is truth. The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. Jesus is saying, we are so unified in our nature in our essence we are we are one that actually everything i'm doing is what the father does everything i am doing are the works of god i don't have any ability to do anything apart from what god is is saying and in, in calling me to do now how many of you have kids how many of you have sons or daughters and it's really cute when they're young because they, they, like, their whole desire is to, is, well, I can't say their whole desire. But it's, it's cute when they're young because they want to do everything their parents are doing, right? They, they, they start walking, they start talking like you, and that becomes a problem later on, right? And then, <laughs> but they're just, they just long to do what their parents do. They're mimicking every single thing you do they're doing. Now, the analogy breaks down as, as we're sinners. But this idea of unity... That the son does nothing of his own will, but only what he sees the father doing. There's such a, 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 they're one. We are so unified that I don't, I'm not going to do anything that the father doesn't do. And what this means is that everything that Jesus was doing was the work of God. Jesus was saying there's no difference between what you see me doing and what God wants to do. God is doing these things. And by the way, he's doing them on the Sabbath. And that's so important for us to know about Jesus that when we see Jesus working miracles, that he works in scriptures as we're reading those, as he's healing the people he heals, as he's demonstrating the power that he demonstrates over nature and over the demonic world, as he speaks to demons and they come out of people, as he tells the wind and the waves to stop and they stop. As he is giving sight to those who have been blind. As he is causing people to hear for the first time. As he is loosing people's tongues who have been mute their whole lives. 
as he is demonstrating authority over sin, to forgive sin and to raise the dead, what we are seeing is the work of God. We are seeing the Father at work. That is exactly what God is doing. He's not doing anything different. It's not like the Father's up there going, oh man, I hope he does what I want him to do. They're doing it. The Son and the Father are one. They are one and the same. They are so interconnected that it is impossible for Jesus to do anything of his own will. Jesus is communicating that he and his Father are one in nature, the one in will, and they're one in their work. Whatever Jesus sees the Father doing, Jesus does. Jesus declares there's no gaps. Later in John 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, telling them he's going to the Father. It's a passage many of you know. He says, hey, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am you may be also. I'm going to the Father and there's a, dia- there's a dialogue between he and Thomas and, and they're wondering w- what this is like. In verse 7 of John 14, it says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him, Jesus declares to his disciples. And I, and I love these next verses. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Right? Like, okay, you've seen the Father, Jesus says. And Jesus says, okay, this this is awesome. Now show us the Father. Like, they're confused. They're they're as confused as we are right now. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen his nature. You've seen his works. You've seen his purposes. You've seen all these things fulfilled. What you have been seeing is the Father at work. We are one. And the disciples don't understand this in chapter 14. We're in chapter 5. Yeah. This is going to be, take a while for them to get it, and me too. But they will. Jesus says to the Jews, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And Jesus tells the Jews why in verse 20. He says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he, he himself is doing. Isn't that interesting? The Father loves the Son. The unity of the Father and Son has always been from all eternity a union of love. That's what their relationship was like before all eternity passed, while Jesus was on earth and is now. It always has been a union of love. And so what do you think the chief commandment to us who are supposedly born of God is? That you what one another? As I have loved you as the Father has loved me. Profound. But you won't catch that meaning of the word love in our English language. It isn't the word agape, which is God's eternal love. It's actually the word phileo, which is brotherly love. It's an affectionate love. It's a familiar love. It's a, it's a family love. And so the love that the Father has with the Son is an eternal relational love. The implications of this are astounding, I think, as Jesus is saying that he is the one, he is one with God in nature and in, in will 
and in their works, and that these religious men are actually persecuting and seeking to kill the Son whom God loves. Isn't that crazy? You're going after the one whom God loves from all eternity. You're persecuting God. Whom he shares everything with. And that as they are rejecting the works of Jesus, they are rejecting the works of God. And so Jesus says to them at the end of verse 20, and greater works than these will he show him so that you will marvel. He's saying, you've seen me do amazing things so far. You haven't seen anything yet. There's greater works coming. Greater works are coming. The Father is, I already know the plans of the Father. He's gonna eat. There's greater works coming. They're coming. I'm going to show you. And it, what's going to happen is you're going to marvel. And by the way, marveling isn't always a good thing when you're on the b- bad end of marvel. Right? You're astonished. Admiration. There's going to be admiration. And Jesus says, what those further works were, verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, one of the unique attributes of God, one of the things that is solely his is that he is the source of life, right? He is the source of life. When we were born, we were given life by our parents, who were given life by their parents, who were given life by their parents. And it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, the scriptures say, and that they received, well, Adam received the breath of God, correct? And so God is the source of life. And then in that case, it's biological life. But not only biological life, all life. I mean, you might be sitting in your chair right now and going, hey, well, this chair is not alive. No, it's very much alive. It's not, it doesn't have biological life, but those molecules and atoms, they're moving. They're all governed by a force that comes from God. Um, you might, just as you might not be able to see the movement in that chair, you can't see into the spiritual realm. You can't see spiritual life. And God is the God of that, but he is the God of all life. He is He's the source of everything that is. And God, being the source of life, Jesus says in verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, guess what? So who else is going to be able to do that? So also the Son gives life to whom he will. What does that mean? Jesus is saying that the Father, he and the Father are one. They are God. They are the source of life. They are in complete unity in their sovereign will to resurrect the di- give and to give eternal life as they please. Just as the Father raises the dead, so the Son has that same power to give that life as at his will. And that is what John says back in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him and by him and for him, and without him nothing was made that was made, right? Verse 4, and in him was life. And that life was the light of men. Jesus is the source of all life. And the Son came to do the will of the Father. And guess what the will of the Father is to do? He came to give dead people life. Spiritually dead people life. And one day Jesus will 
follow that spiritual resurrection with a physical resurrection, both for believers and non-believers, by the way. We'll get into that. But it's, Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life. And so the Father and Son, they're perfectly unified in their essence, in their nature of who they are, in their, in their will, in their works, and in their love, and in their power. Right? Verse 22, they're also perfectly unified in receiving honor. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to whom? The Son. Jesus is judge. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. It's interesting, in the Old Testament we see the Father as the judge, in the New Testament we see the Son as the judge. Just as the Father is judged, so the Father judges. And so the Son judges. Whoever does not honor the Son, guess what? Does not honor the Father who sent him. And so the Father is in such unity with the Son that he just commits all, all judgment to the Son. There is no differentiation between their judgment. He commits it to the Son, the Son of his love. He entrusts the judgment of the, of the world to his Son. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5-10, through 10, gives us a view of that coming judgment committed to the Son. Paul is speaking to the church in Thessalonica, some who have been persecuted by those who have rejected Christ. And Paul says, starting in verse 5, he says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Verse 6, kind of getting to the key here, since indeed God considers it just, to repay with affliction those who afflicted you. He's talking about paying back those who have persecuted the body of Christ. He's going to bring judgment. And verse 7, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. In other words, there's going to be a time when the affliction is going to be done. Well, when is that going to happen? When is judgment going to come? And when is peace going to come? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, verse 8, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer punishment of what? Eternal destruction, not annihilation, eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be what? Glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you was believed. And so judgment has been entrusted to the Son. Acts 17, 30 through 31 echoes this. The time of ignorance of God is overlooked, but now he commands that all people everywhere, what? Repent. This is what God commands of the world, what commands of you, of me, that we turn from our sin and turn to our gods. Why? Because, verse 31, he has fixed a day on which, what? God will judge. He will judge the world in righteousness. Well, how is God going to judge the world in righteousness? By a, what? By a man. Wow. Well, who is this man whom he has appointed? In all of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him, that man, from the dead. 
That man who will judge the world is the God-man, Jesus Christ. All judgment has been given to the Son. As, as Jesus says in John 5.23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus shares in the exact same honor as the Father. Clear as could be, they are one. And Jesus doubling down before the Jews, saying that he and God are one in the same, that they are unified in their essence, in their will, in their works, in their love, in their life, and now in honor. Now in verse 24, he turns that and says, because of all this, verse 24, truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He who does not come, uh, he who does uh, uh, not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So again, that phrase "truly, truly" is emphatic. Jesus is saying, "You can take to this, this to the bank, guys." Right? Jesus just declared that he is the judge of the world, and as declaring himself equal with God and judge of the world, what does he then turn to those who are persecuting in him and? and who are about to, who, who are plotting to kill him, what does he do with them? It's a warning, obviously, but what is, what's the heart of Jesus? What is he doing? He says, basically, in a, a way of words, I'm the judge, and I won't judge you if you hear me, if you believe you repent. It's the gospel, church. He's giving them the gospel. See, Jesus saves. What does he save us from? Saves us from the judgment. Saves us from the judgment that he is actually going to bring. Isn't that crazy? And he offers himself to, so that we would avoid that judgment. What grace, what mercy. And if you reject him the second time he comes, guess what? There's no means of saving. But that's the great news. The gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was sent by the Father to die on behalf of sinners, to die on behalf of those who persecute God, who reject God, who go after God, who, who deny God, who don't have anything to do with God, who are hardened heart in their hearts towards God. And not only to die on behalf of them, but to impute, which is to transfer, to give his righteousness to you. Not only does he, he pay for the wrath that would come upon you by dying on the cross, but then he imputes his righteousness. That's important. You don't get clean because your, your slate's been cleaned. You get clean because there's been a transfer. You've been born again. You've been given his Holy Spirit. You become holy because he is holy and he is now the life that is within you. You're born again of him. You're born of God. By grace, through faith in Jesus. And Jesus says, believe that I'm the Son of God, the Savior of the world, your Savior, and turn from your sin and believe, and you will avoid the wrath of God. I won't judge you. How merciful. Isn't that crazy? So Jesus, who is one with God, in his mercy, he's calling these men who are persecuting and seeking to kill him to repent. He's calling to repent and believe so that they would not come under the judgment of God, but have eternal life. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
Again, Jesus is saying emphatically again, truly, truly, you guys got to take this to the bank. The Son of God is going to raise the dead. This is the work that you're going to marvel at. Not only am I going to give spiritual life, I'm going to raise the dead, the resurrection from the dead. What Jesus is speaking of here is actually the spiritual resurrection part of it. We're going to get to the physical resurrection. It's going to be followed by a physical resurrection. And what the spiritually dead people who are separated from God, Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to speak, they're going to hear my voice, and they're going to come to life. My sheep know my voice. And like the wind, the Spirit of God will come over the dead, hardened hearts and they will rise to life as they respond to the gracious voice of the Savior of the world. Ephesians 2 fleshes this speaking and, and, and being raised to life. So there's an analogy there. Jesus is saying, listen, there's a time coming, but now is when I'm going to speak and the dead are going to rise. And we immediately think to the resurrection. Jesus is going to get there, but he's talking about the spiritual resurrection here. Dead people are going to be born again. And Ephesians 2 fleshes this out. I'll read it for you really quickly. Verses 1 through basically 8 or 7 here. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul throws everybody in one lump, says we all were dead at one point. We we're all following after us and not God. We were just blind to God. We were spiritually dead. And that might be you this morning, totally indifferent to the things of God. You might even be religious, but you have never been born again. Paul says here, that's how we all were before a verse 4 happens. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, verse 5, even when we were what? Dead in our trespasses, he did what? Made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. In verse 6, he goes on, he says, and raised us alive up with him. These are all pictures of the resurrection, right? And raised us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he, and I love this verse, he didn't resurrect us just for fun. It was for his good pleasure. And for those of you who are worried about, well, what happens next? A verse 7 happens next for those of you who are in Christ. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's your future in Christ. When you check out, guess what's ahead of you? In the ages to come, whatever that means. Whatever his plan is, I tell you what it involves. Immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Immeasurable riches. How much money do you have in your bank? It's a measurable amount immeasurable riches, immeasurable grace, immeasurable kindness, inexhaustible in Christ Jesus. And that's something you just want to sit around and ponder. 
Let that grace sink into your soul. I love that. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Well, how did this happen? Jesus spoke and you came to life. You believed him. Amen? And he's speaking now to dead men and women who might be churched. Amen? To come to life. And he takes us dead people to go proclaim the life that we've been given as we've been resurrected. And now we share that life with others. And we proclaim in the voice of God, graciously moves through his church, moves through his word, by his spirit. And dead men and women come to life. Dead kids come to life. It's so sweet. For by grace you have been saved. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. It's not just hear, it's believe. Those are synonymous words. This is a spiritual resurrection that will lead to a physical resurrection in the age to come. Jesus is saying that this is coming in the future, but this is happening right now. The Lord Jesus is calling some who are dead here this morning to rise from the dead. And as you respond and believe, he gives you life. I don't understand how it all works. But he says, this is the works of God, to believe on him whom whom the Father sent. And so, verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Again, the Son and the Father are one. They have life in themselves. Verse 27, And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is uniquely qualified to judge us because he has lived the life we've lived. Hebrews 4.15 says, He was tempted as we are yet without sin. He lived the life we, were, we lived. He was tempted in the ways we have been. He has been human, and yet he was victorious. He is without sin. Amen? And in verse 28, he says, Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear the voice. So, There are those who weren't in their tombs that would hear the voice and be raised to life. Now he's talking about those who have physically died. A different resurrection. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of what? Of judgment. Two resurrections. Dead people will be judged. Righteous and unrighteous. This is what Jesus is saying. So not only will there be a spiritual resurrection for the righteous, there will be a physical one as well for all mankind. Whoever lived. Jesus already said that there, those who hear the Son of God will be resurrected. That's a spiritual resurrection. If you've been born again, that's a great thing. Because you will be given on that day that Jesus resurrects the righteous a new body fit for eternity. And that's what the resurrection of life is. It is for those who have been born again. They have spiritual life and that is followed by a spiritual body that fits that spiritual life. How many of you love Jesus incredibly much and you have this dead person hanging on you day after day. I'm not talking about people around you. I'm talking about you. 
That too, by the way. Because <laughs> that, in Christ, that person's going to be gone. He's going to give us a new body that fits the new, the new spirit. Jesus, uh, Paul said, the outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being what? Renewed day by day. And one day, in God's kindness, he will allow us to shed that old, old body, and he's going to give us a new one. So when we die, our spirits go with Christ, but there will be a day when he gives us a resurrected body. Luke calls that day the resurrection of, of the righteous also. So the resurrection, the resurrection of life, the resurrection of, of life uh, of, of the righteous, Luke says in Luke 14. But I believe it takes place right at the beginning of the great tribulation, and, and this is where both those living and, and the... Um, and those who have died in Christ will be given a new body. First um, Thessalonians describes this event. Now, I, I understand there's different people in the body see this different. Let's not, let's not destroy each other over that. Um, the point is, Christ is going to resurrect the righteous. I think it's very important to major on the major, majors, okay? He's going to resurrect the righteous. But Paul describes this in First Thessalonians. According to the Lord's word, this is 1 Thessalonians um, 4, verse 15. It says, According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. That means those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and what will happen? The dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and remain are, are left and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so according to 2 Thessalonians, the dead in Christ, that is those who are who are already with the Lord, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When you die, your spirit immediately goes to be with the Lord. There will be a time when the Lord shouts and we both the, those remaining on the earth and those who are with him will be united in the resurrection, will receive their bodies and they will be with the Lord and I believe in the air while the, while the seven years of tribulation is going on. They will be resurrected and by the way, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that moment for those of, who, of us who are still on the earth. It says, in a moment, in a twinkling of eye, we, we, not everybody's going to die. They're, we should be changed. There'll be a metamorphosis. It'll happen instantly to where they'll be transformed. Not everybody's going to experience death. He's, he was teaching about the resurrection. He's saying, listen, those of you who are, are waiting for the Lord, and if the Lord decides to come while you're still here, there's going to be an instant transformation. You're going to transfer out of Matt 1.0 into Matt eternity. And it's going to be awesome. You're going to instant upgrade. Don't have to wait for the download. It's just going to be boom. It'll be just a moment, right? Twinkling of an eye, a nanosecond. And so I believe the scriptures teach that those who believe and the believers will, will avoid the wrath of God being poured out on that seven-year tribulation period um, <clears throat> because they will be resurrected at that moment right before that happens. And um, then we're going to return at the end of that seven-year period and rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. A thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom. But the second resurrection 
I don't think these take place at the same time. The second resurrection, the resurrection of the judgment, I believe happens at the end of that thousand-year reign. As you're reading in, in um, was it Revelation 20? But the second resurrection that Jesus speaks of in verse 29, the resurrection of the judgment, it, it happens at the end of Christ's reign. And so at that time, the devil is going to be released on the earth, it talks about. So he's bound up at the beginning of the thousand years. Got to back up for you guys. Uh, sorry, eschatology. This is all clear in my head, but I got to I got to clear it up. We're waiting. I believe we're waiting for the Lord to shout, and the church is going to be called up to Him, which will then start the seven-year tribulation on earth. First three and a half years, not so bad. Last three and a half years, hell on earth. God's pouring out His judgment. At the end of that time, Christ is physically going to come back to the earth with the church, and establish his kingdom on earth like he said. A thousand year reign of, of, of that. At that time Satan will be bound for a thousand years. <clears throat> at the end of that time, at the end of that thousand years, Satan will be released, the scriptures say. And that's when he gathers the nations, those who are obviously still unregenerate. <clears throat> he will gather them together, they will go against Christ, Christ will speak, they'll be destroyed, they're going to die. Satan will be cast into hell where the Antichrist had been for a thousand years. They'll be cast into the lake of fire, excuse me. And at that point, the resurrection of all mankind, every single person who's rejected Christ, who are being kept in hell, a holding tank, <clears throat> will be brought before the king of the universe, where he will judge them according to what they have done. They will be resurrected with physical bodies fit for eternal judgment. This is what Jesus is talking about. Eternal judgment. Jesus says that at basically at that point, he's going to judge them. He's going to cast them into the eternal lake of fire. Scary, scary stuff. You can read that in Revelation 20, speaking of his resurrection of the judgment, the great white throne judgment is what it's called. So those two resurrections Jesus is speaking about, <coughs> excuse me, I would highly encourage you to read it because it's pretty in-depth. But here's the point, church. Jesus is speaking now so that you avoid the then. And he wants people to come to life, receive him, be saved from that second judgment. Amen? <clears throat> so Jesus declares to the Jews, back in John 5, 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment really quickly, need to clarify. Jesus says, you will know a tree by its what? Its fruit. You don't scotch tape apples to an orange tree to make it whatever kind of tree I just said. Yeah. It is by what it is by its nature, correct? You're a Christian, and we know you're a Christian by what? fruit you produce in your life. And that's what he's saying. 
the good works are evidence that you have the, experienced the new birth because guess who is at the center of your life? You've been born again of the Spirit of God. Those who aren't, what's produced in their life? Evil. And that's why he's saying, I'm going to judge you according to what you've done. And by the way, the righteous are judged at the cross. That's where our punishment is. But guess what happens when we stand before the mercy seat of God? We are rewarded according to what we have done on this earth. And so that's why it's, it's important. <laughs> what you do now determines your rewards then. Amen? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with this much. I'm now going to give you this much for eternity. So this is why we spur one another on towards love and good works that he might receive the honor and glory and that we would share in his glory as we're rewarded. But Jesus goes on in verse 30. We're almost there. <clears throat> he says, after all this, after he says, listen, I'm going to judge the earth. I want to give eternal life, but it's going to come down to the judgment. He just makes it clear in verse 30. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I what? I judge. And my judgment is just. Why? Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Even the judgment is the work of God. Isn't that crazy? The whole thing. Everything Jesus has done. From healing, from restoring, from giving life to sending people to hell. It is all God. The Father and the Son are one. That's John's point. And men hate it. We love our darkness. And they persecuted the Son because they hated the Father. For those who say that Jesus is not God, those especially religionists who say that Jesus is not, they have not read the book of John. It is the whole thrust of the book of John the deity of Jesus Christ, that God became flesh, that Jesus is one with the Father. Jesus is unified in the Father in His essence, in His very nature. Jesus is unified with the Father in His will. Jesus is unified with the Father in His works, in love, in giving eternal life, in judgment, in glory. They're one. And the message of John over and over and over again is that the Son came to give you His life. And the Spirit comes and he, he shows us that we're in darkness. And that's the work of the Spirit. He convicts us of our sin to drive us to a Savior, a loving Savior, a kind Savior. And here's the cool thing about it, that as we are convicted and as we become poor in spirit and as we grieve over our sin and... And as we respond to the work of God in our hearts and we look to Jesus to save us, he comforts us, he gives us his Holy Spirit. And guess what he does with us? We're born again, we're adopted into his family, we enter into the fellowship of his love for all eternity. John 17, we're headed to the throne room of John 17 where Jesus is praying and says, Father, make them one as we are one. I can't even get my mind around that. That 
the glory that we've shared from all eternity, that they would be a part of that for all eternity to come. What grace that we would be able to enter into fellowship with a holy God, that he would bring us in. And all of this is because the Father loves the Son and you are a love gift to him. You're part of his love. And so we exist to glorify God by loving and obeying Jesus Christ. And, you know, again, it's not our plan. It's his plan. It's his glory. And, and Father, what's, what's your will? How do we know what the will of the Father is? We look at the Son. <laughs> John would later on go and in 1 John he says, you know what? You want to know that you have, you're of, you have life? You live as Jesus lived. That's evidence that you're his, is that our lives more and more reflect the Son in our daily lives. And that's just a work of God. And so I, I know I'm kind of getting off script here. But God sent his son to bring us in that beautiful union with him no we are not god we're not becoming gods that's not the same kind of union they are distinctly god but we become sons and daughters of the living god adopted into his family enjoying all the benefits of that relationship for all eternity but these men these men had another thing coming and I very, very easily could be those men. All of us could. And so do not harden your heart today to the Lord Jesus Christ who calls out. Respond to him. Enter into his love. Repent from your sin. Love the Lord. Follow him all your days. Enjoy his good work. Amen? Lord God, we just thank you for this beautiful uh, passage where we learned a lot about you. But I pray that that head knowledge would move into a heart relationship. Lord, as, as we look into your scriptures, we don't just want to get the facts. and as We're not studying for a history test and trying to get everything just to forget it. But we want to see you and we want to know you. And Father, you've revealed yourself to us through your Son. Hebrews says he is the exact representation of you. Colossians says that as well. And so, Lord, we, as we look upon Jesus, we marvel at you, Father. And we ask, Lord, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, in our hearts. Rule and reign. Have your way. I'm so thankful that you said that you no longer uh, call us slaves, but we're, 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 we're friends because you've, you've let us known into what your plan is. Lord, we now know what your plan is in so many ways. And Father, we just want to be a part of what you want us to do. Um, that we would bring you glory today, this week, this month. Until that day when you shout and we're with you. And so Lord, uh, we, we give you our hearts. We ask that 
that your honor, your glory would be magnified in our lives this week. Purify us, Lord. Cause us to walk in light of the knowledge we've received. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.